Father God, I am I'm humbled by the task before me to preach the truth of your word. And Lord, I pray that you will still, um, still my soul and still my heart and mind and give me a clarity of word. I pray that you will even be communicating to me as I, as I preach and speak from your word. Lord, I pray for everyone here this morning that they will listen to me with open hearts and minds and that you will be able to effectively communicate to them what you would like them to hear from your word. Lord, we praise you because you have um, signed, sealed and delivered us um, to you. And Lord, you've done this for yourself, by yourself and with yourself. So Lord, help us to dwell on that today and give you the honour that is due to you, submitting our very lives to you. So Lord, strengthen me now as I speak and help us all to learn this morning a little more of your truth. We ask this in the blessed name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. So the passage this morning that we're looking at is... um, Joel 2, 28 to 32, but as we just saw that effectively by me preaching from this passage, I'm also preaching from Acts 2, um, where Peter literally, word for word, um, quotes Joel's prophecy, um, which is quite a rare occasion in scripture. This is one of the only occasions that we see such a lengthy prophecy um, clearly reiterated. And so in my in my explaining of the um, of the original prophecy, the, I, I have to spend time in Acts two. So um, there may be times where you think, "Hang on, is this a sermon on Joel two or on Acts two? And the answer is yes. It's, um, it's a sermon on both. So this prophecy that we see in Joel two is effectively one of the most amazing prophecies that we see in scripture and um, this is for many reasons but mainly because it has such far-reaching implications for all um, who call on the name of Jesus um, from the the beginning to the end. Um, Every believer is deeply um, affected by these truths that we see here. Um, The promise for God to pour out his spirit on all people um, is, is when you can really consider what that means is amazing and awesome and deserves our full, um, our full attention. So the Lord of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, pouring out of himself, not only in the presence of his people, but in and dwelling with people who are not God. And when you consider the ramifications for that, it is, it is quite amazing. Um, there's been some commentators that have made a comment saying they're not sure which one was the most was the true condescension of the Lord. Was it Jesus becoming man or was it the Holy Spirit dwelling in the hearts of men? So when, when, you, when you consider that God who is perfectly holy has now promised, not only promised, but as we will see, has fulfilled 
this promise of actually dwelling in sinful human beings. And that's, that's hard for us to fathom. And, but when we truly understand that, when we truly understand what that means, we, we know who we are in Christ and there's such an assurance that comes with that. And I think all of us are in need of um, really being, having that assurance um, spoken to us and applied into our lives. So I've chosen to sum all this up by using the phrase signed, sealed, delivered, which, as I said, it sounds a little um, cheesy, but I, I think it's very, very apt for, for this passage. So God effectively signed his name on his promise through Joel. So by him speaking his word through his prophet, he signed his name to his promises. After signing that, he effectively sealed. He sealed that promise with his Holy Spirit at the time of Pentecost. And that's we'll get we'll get to unpack exactly what that means and how that happened. And the result of being signed and sealed is delivered. So God delivers His people from His judgment to Himself. And that deliverance is where I want to spend most of my time today, um, because it's really that that is what is applying to us in the age that we are in, which is. Um, obviously not in the time of Joel. Um, we know who Christ is. We know that he came in fulfilment of all the Old Testament prophecies and history changed um, for eternity with the arrival of Christ. And through Christ's work, we see the arrival of the Holy Spirit. So the work of God in history totally transformed everything. So while the Old Testament prophets pointed forward, we today look back at the work of God and that is our prophecy we are proclaiming all of God's people are proclaiming the truths of God the work of God and we do that by looking back to the work of Christ at the cross to the arrival of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and to the promise we have of Christ returning which is a sure promise which we know will come to pass and with that arrival will be judgment which we were going, we're going to unpack what that looks like. There will be judgment and there will be salvation. And in the history of the economy of God, we see judgment and salvation working in unison at all times. God saves through his judging works. So anyone who says, I don't want a God who judges, I want a God who saves then you can't. For a God who does not judge cannot save. You do not have salvation unless you have something to be saved from. So it's very important that we understand what this work of salvation is and what exactly we have been saved from, what we are being saved from and what we are going to be saved from. So there's a then, now, and a not yet. And that's really what we're going to unpack. So signed then, sealed now, delivered now and not yet. So this stage that we are in of the church, that we are able to gather together and learn about Christ, 
the, the, what I'm speaking into now is the stage of now, not yet. We have assurance now, but the application and the full understanding of what our assurance is and what it's going to look like is still to come in the arrival of the Lord Jesus. So let's go back then to the time of Joel. So this, this uh, prophecy was preached at a very dire time for the nation of Israel. So those of us who know a little bit of our Old Testament history will know that Israel um, has quite a checkered history. They've been um, quite disobedient, stiff-necked, rebellious, not, not too much unlike what we are today. And Israel found themselves um, redeemed and saved in the Exodus, given, given a land of their own and a nation formed by God, through God and for God. And yet they failed. They failed time and time again, eventually leading up to their exile. Now it's after the return of their exile that we see this passage apply. So the nation of Israel was in the process of being restored. And sometime around then, commentators can't give an exact date, but we're guessing around 7 to 800 BC, there was at some stage a very serious plague that faced the nation of Israel, and that was a plague of locusts. So the whole book of Joel is very much based on this locust plague that was happening at the time that God raised him up. Now, this plague was quite serious. It lasted for many, many years. It decimated the agriculture of Israel. They were no longer able to do trade with their neighbours. Their food stores were diminished to next to nothing. There was, there was a drought, a famine. There was, it was a very dire situation. And it was at the peak of that, after years, that the people were crying out in distress and the Lord raised up his prophet Joel. Now, in the first verse of Joel, we see simply the word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. The word of the Lord came to Joel. This is where we get our promise signed. The word of the Lord coming to man. Man speaking God's word on his behalf. The inspired word of God spoken through human lips. That's God signing his promises. While it's man speaking, it's God's very words. And that's what we're to take from this wherever we see it in scripture. The Lord speaks and men faithfully write it down. We have inspired scripture here. So Joel used this locust plague as the theme of his preaching. The whole book of Joel is referring to this locust plague and he uses that locust plague to point to spiritual truths also. So while the locust plague was the physical judgment that Israel was undergoing at the time, there was also a spiritual element there. So pointing to a future where the nation of Israel will, you know, will, will be attacked from all sides where there will be calamities and disasters. And this 
prophecy is repeated all the way through and even Peter in Pentecost points ahead to this judgment. So there's a, there's a spiritual reality which has not been realised fully. Um, however, we do see a partial fulfilment in the future. So the day of the Lord was then. The day of the Lord was seen at the cross of Christ The day of the Lord is today. The day of salvation is today. And then the day of the Lord will be at the arrival of the Lord Jesus. So whenever we speak of prophecy in Scripture, and this is something we can remember for all passages that we read that are prophetic, there is a then, now, and not yet element. So there's always an immediate fulfilment, and there is then the prophetic element. So the immediate fulfilment guarantees as such that what is promised will come to pass. And in Old Testament prophecy, just like this one here, we see God restoring the nation of Israel from the judgment that they were facing. The locust plague was removed. The years that the locusts had eaten were redeemed and restored. And God showed his restoring, redemptive promises to be realised here. There was a material, physical blessing which the nation of Israel immediately saw upon the preaching of Joel. There was an immediate blessing. Now this physical blessing, in essence, is almost the opposite of what you hear in prosperity teaching today. So this pattern is quite abnormal. We're used to thinking about this physical blessing coming later. And the reality that we need to look at here is that in the Old Testament times, prophecy always began with a physical blessing, which pointed to the spiritual blessing yet to come. Whereas today knowing who Christ is, what he's done, and having the Holy Spirit already poured out. Prophecy looks a little different. We're proclaiming the work of God that he has already begun to accomplish. We point forward to what he's still achieving. So, in essence, we've switched from physical pointing to spiritual to now spiritual pointing to physical. So, That puts Jesus Christ in the centre of human history and there he will stand. As long as people walk this earth, Jesus Christ stands at the centre. Creation points to his future work. We now look back to what he has achieved and we live in light of him. We live the life that he lived. So while I keep pointing to Jesus, and and indeed I must, um, everything that we read in this passage points to the marvellous work of Christ. But after this physical restoration, we see our prophecy today. And verse 27, which comes just before the passage we're looking at, the Lord says, Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. There's your physical blessing. 
There's God dwelling with his people. But not only was he going to dwell with his people, we then see the next promise, which is the spiritual promise. And afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Those first two verses there would have been a shock to the people at the time, possibly even Joel himself. The history of Israel, we see there is prophecy, but it's very limited. The Holy Spirit was definitely poured out upon various people throughout history. Um, In the Exodus, you have Moses, you have the people that he raised up to work to build a tabernacle were filled or given the Holy Spirit to carry out their task. Throughout the life of Moses, there was various instances where the Holy Spirit came upon people for the purpose of prophecy. And that generally happened in the form of dreams and visions were often related to prophecy. So the dreams and the visions is really just a reiteration of the first part, which is the prophecy. So God will pour out his Spirit on all flesh, on all people. And as a result, those people will prophesy. And it's not just men. It's sons and daughters, servants, maidservants. We start to see a pattern here. points us to Paul's words in the future where he says there is no, there's no distinction. You know, there's no Jew or Gentile, no slave, no free, no male, no female, but all all equal in the eyes of the Lord. This is this is the crux of the promise, really. All people being prophets. I don't think they quite realise what the all people meant. At the time, it would have been taken to mean just Israel. Often we see, when we see references to all people, men and women, even just men, it generally refers to Israel, to their own nation. People outside of that were either foreigners, some kind of infidels, pagans. They, They weren't referred to as even people. So the nations were a separate people. So for them to hear that God would pour his spirit on all people, they're thinking, well, this is just going to be for us. This is going to be the Jews. It's going to be Israel. So imagine their surprise when they, the apostles find themselves um, at the time of Pentecost, themselves blessed and filled with the Holy Spirit, only to see that same spirit fall upon the Samaritans, the Gentiles, and all who called on the name of the Lord. So looking at the time of Joel, we see that there's a signed promise from God pointing to the sealing and delivering that comes as a result of those promises. Now it's important to note at this point that in all of God's promises including this one, he makes his elective 
promises sure. So this is a promise of election. This is a this is a reminder of our predestination. And I'm aware that you guys last week were spoken to um, by a dear friend of mine, Shane, and I, I think he spoke on Ephesians 1, if I recall. Now, I'm sure he mentioned God's elective promises and redemptive promises. And the assurance that comes from that. And this promise we see today is really um, pointing to the very same thing. In fact, Ephesians 1, that he spoke from, verse 13 and 14, clearly point to the very same thing. So the Holy Spirit being the seal for our inheritance and the down payment, the Holy Spirit himself is the down payment guaranteeing our election in Christ, guaranteeing our deliverance from the day of judgment. That's our hope. That's our hope. So as I continue, I want us to really be thinking about where our hope lies. Because as the Apostle Peter says, we need to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. And that hope is indeed deliverance. Deliverance from the Day of Judgment. And the Day of Judgment is here and it will be here. Our deliverance is now and it will be in the future. But before we move into the time of Pentecost and into today, we're going to, I'd like to sort of sit down and unpack what it might mean for us today in, full, in a lot of detail and maybe share a bit of myself and what I believe about that too. But before I do that, I think it's important to note that at the time of Joel, a lot of this election just wasn't sure. They didn't know what the ceiling would look like. It's not until we get to Pentecost where there's such a surety and there's assurance. The prophets speak boldly. Peter gets up and speaks boldly. and says, this is that. So, so let's go to Pentecost. Let's go to Pentecost and see what happens then. We do that by going to Acts 2. Now the gospel that I'm preaching today is no different than the gospel that was preached last week by Shane no different to the gospel that was preached by Peter at Pentecost, which was no different than the gospel that was preached by Joel some 800 years before that. Joel's passage in verse 32 says it quite clearly, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. On Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the survivors who the Lord calls. God saves out of judgment. He calls those that are his. And in response, they call on him. This is the promise we rest on. This is the promise that immediately Peter pointed to when he saw what was happening at Pentecost. This is the promise that we must rest on today. 
and look back on and look forward to, knowing that God has achieved what he set out to do and he will not fail to achieve what he has promised to do. So as I mentioned earlier, we went from the material to the spiritual. The material blessings pointed to the future work of Christ. At Pentecost, we see the reversal. There was a spiritual blessing which pointed to the material blessing, the physical blessing which was yet to come. When we think about the time that Pentecost happened, it was in the first century of a Roman Empire that was hostile to the message of the gospel that was hostile to the Jews and probably more so hostile to the Christians when they came to be. That hostility didn't change, it grew. So the question we start asking ourselves when we look to the now and not yet is, hang on, I've mentioned verse 29 and 28 and 29 of this prophecy. What do we do with the rest of it? What do we do with the wonders in heavens and on earth, with the blood, the fire, the billows of smoke, the sun turning to darkness and the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord? What do we do with this passage? What do we do with that? This is a promise too. This is a promise of judgment. How are we to understand this today? How did Peter understand it then? While it's easy to point and say, yes, this is the Holy Spirit being poured out on all people. This is God's promises being fulfilled. Yay! But then in the midst of that, you've got this part of that promise was actually a very strong and severe judgment. There's a warning that comes with this promise. We're not to seek physical comfort in this life. This promise of impending judgment has also been fulfilled and is being fulfilled and will be fulfilled. So we need to understand what that means for us today. You know what? We're in a world that remains hostile to the gospel and that grows each day and it will continue to grow. In fact, Jesus promises that the world will hate us because they because it hated him. There will come a day where people following Christ will be so few, they will definitely be the minority in the world and they will be persecuted. That's a promise. Take it to the bank. Living for Christ, truly living for Christ, is not something that breeds success in this world. It is not something that people will love you for. In fact, it's been my experience that I've experienced the opposite. My experience has been that I've lost every friend I had. I've had to walk with Christ, turning my back on the world and turning my back on what the world says was success. So I personally have walked with the world cheering me and saying, look at you, look at Mike, what a lovely guy, what a success. I've actually received an award that was most successful you know, after 10 years of my school reunion. 
That was in the midst of me being um, a ruthless businessman and pretty much a criminal. And I did not know God, but yet the world said I was successful. Then I come to know Christ and what happens? The world rejects me and says, we don't want you anymore. You're no longer successful. You mean you don't want money anymore? Well, we don't want you. You mean you want to tell us about Jesus? We're not interested in Jesus. That guy, you believe in him? Don't you want what we have? Family, marriage, you look, I, I marry a wife and then the world says, why do you guys, why don't you want money? Why are you at Bible college? Why are you preparing to have a life with no income? Why, why don't you send your kids to great schools? Mike, you've got business expertise. Why don't you go out and start another business? Why bother with Bible college? Well, I'll tell you why I bother. Because I've been sealed for deliverance. And that deliverance isn't now. I look forward to the day that is still to come. And I live my life now submitted to the will of God. And even when that hurts. That hurts. So my message is this. Truly submitting to the will of God will hurt. And it will come with a challenge. It will come with a cost. But this promise will show you that that cost is well worth well worth it. And there's nothing that we pay that can ever, ever come close to what Jesus paid on our behalf. So remember that. The debt that we deserve to pay to God, Jesus paid so that we may be free. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. So we get to Pentecost. Enough about me, let's talk about Peter. And Peter knew this to be true. So he spoke when they saw this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The result of this outpouring was the people began to speak. The Bible says they spoke in tongues. Now that's that term is sort of bandied around amongst churches and it can be seen as a dirty word as such. You know, speaking in tongues, it has people kind of balk straight away and go, what, you know, you speak in tongues? Well, yeah, most of us do. And if you can speak your own language, you're speaking in tongues. And while there is references in scripture later where the Apostle Paul talks about there is angelic languages, but he also states that we're not to seek those out. What we are meant to seek out is proclaiming the things of God in the languages that we know. Two people in languages that they know. Hence, we have Bible translators all around the world. Bible translation effectively started at Pentecost, where we see... God's word poured out with his spirit upon his people. And then in Acts 2 we see with tongues of fire 
which would have been amazing to see, the Holy Spirit poured out upon the apostles, who then spoke in every language of the people that were present. And at least the nations here, there were people from multiple nations that had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. It was a common thing. If you were a Jew that lived outside of Jerusalem, there were a couple of times a year where you went to Jerusalem. This was one of them. But the response from the people, it's interesting because there are some people who respond, wow, we can hear the wonders of God in our own tongues. They understood. What does this mean? But then there was some, we notice in verse 13, there were some who made fun of the apostles, disciples, and said to them, they've had too much to drink. You guys are drunk. Listen to the sound you're making. You guys are drunk. You're talking gibberish. So Peter stands up and starts off saying, no, these guys can't be drunk. Look at the time. Look at the time. It's only seven, eight, nine in the morning. It's first thing in the morning. How can these guys be drunk now? No. This is that. The way he says it is exactly what I just said. This is that. Which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to God by you by miracles, wonders and signs. God did among you through him. Here we see Peter immediately understanding that these signs, verse 19, I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below. There's the works of Jesus. Jesus himself was the fulfillment, the beginning of this fulfillment. The signs were sure. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Peter claims, is now fulfilled. This is that. The promised Holy Spirit has now been poured out on us and on all who call on the name of Jesus. So we see the ceiling right there. The Holy Spirit is the means that we are sealed for the day of redemption. So God signs his promises, seals us with his own spirit, and he delivers us from judgment. Peter understood this. He goes on to talk about how Jesus himself has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and it's him who has poured out what you now see and hear. The work of Christ 
the work of Christ, the means that the Holy Spirit was able to be poured out. Jesus of Nazareth came and poured himself out at the cross so that the Holy Spirit might be poured out on those who call on his name. And that's where our assurance lies. The work of Christ is sure. The work of the Holy Spirit is sure. If we are sealed with him, then the promise of deliverance will not fail. The promise of the Holy Spirit was delivered not only on the Jews, but then Samaritans and Gentiles, seeing a fulfilment of Acts 1 verse 8, where Jesus says why the Holy Spirit will come. He says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Here's the purpose. We are to be witnesses of the Lord Jesus. All who bear the Holy Spirit are now witnesses for Christ. So how do you know when someone has the Holy Spirit within them the gospel is going to be on their lips in fact the Holy Spirit is the spirit of prophecy there is no prophecy without him being the one speaking but in this little passage of Jesus telling them why the Holy Spirit was coming there was also one verse that's going to help us to realise what the rest of this prophecy is pointing to. In, verse, in chapter 1, verse 7, Jesus says, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. This helps us to unpack what this judgment promise is actually pointing to. It's tempting for us to be just like the disciples who asked Jesus, when will you restore Israel? Now that you've done what you've set out to do, when are you going to restore Israel? We want, we want the kingdom of Israel restored. We want the king on the throne. And Jesus says, hang on, it's not for you to know those times, but you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. You will be my witnesses to the end of the earth. We're a little bit like that today. We want to know when's Jesus returning. When will we see the moon turn to blood, the sun turn to darkness? When will we see this fire and blood and signs from the heavens that, God, that Jesus will return? There's actually guys out there, like t this day, you know, there's whole organisations that exist to examine the skies for the return of the Lord. And... You could spend all your time examining astronomy and all these different phenomena in the skies to say this is all pointing to Jesus' return. But you'd be looking in the wrong place. The signs are all around us. The signs are all around us. We're in a world full of broken families, hurts, miseries, suffering. We who have the Holy Spirit within us must live in a world that is hostile to us. We suffer loss, family members passing away, sickness. There's suffering all around us. We're in a world that is broken, groaning, like groans of childbirth, awaiting the arrival of the sons of God. That's where we are today. 
we need this assurance. The world that we are in needs this assurance that we have. We're in a world that's crying out for the hope of Jesus and just doesn't know it. So this judgment is coming, but it's here already. And the more time goes by, the more the world around us is just, is just wasting away. And if we think that we can grab on to the promises of the world and say, this is, this is what our hope is, God's blessed me. I can, I can have this money, this house, this job. You know, this, this is what God has blessed me with. I'm faithful to God. He's blessed me. You know, it's like, no. You live for that. Then you're not living for him. And we're in a world full of brokenness. But the greatest blessing that we're given with the Holy Spirit poured out in us is that we can walk in that brokenness, that we can be broken and yet stand up and say, I'm redeemed, I'm saved, I know I will stand before the throne of God, redeemed, pure, holy and blameless. To live for eternity. That's our hope. That's what we live for. And that's the gospel. The gospel message is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among survivors who the Lord calls. The Lord calls his people. His people call on him. He screams out to us, I'm yours. We answer him with, I'm yours. So come what may, we stand. Now, if you don't know for yourself this hope, if you're in a world where everything's falling apart around you, and you have questions as to how, what that means. And you might hear people telling you, you know, just follow Jesus and your life will work out. I'm here to tell you, follow Jesus, your life might not work out the way you think. You know, physical circumstances won't immediately just be fixed. But what will change is your heart. The Holy Spirit is in the transformation business. And when he transforms you, you will be delivered. Father God, we thank you and praise you because you have signed, sealed and delivered us from you, through you, and to you. And you've done this all of your own work. We thank you, Lord, that it's not our work that we need to come to you, but rather yours. That you call us and that we hear your call. Lord, I thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I pray that everyone here is encouraged 
by the assurance that we have in you. I pray that this lengthened time this morning hasn't been a burden, but rather has helped to encourage and to lift up and to remind everyone here of exactly what it is that you're doing in your church, in your people. So, Lord, we pray that your will is done within us, within your church and within your world so that we will see your name lifted high for eternity. Amen.